No Nazis were harmed in the making of this podcast. Void were prohibited, and in Tennessee. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Illinois Nazis. <laughs> Doesn't. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 35 of the show. Man, every week we get a higher number every week. I'm like, damn, Scott's still putting up with my dumb ass. So, uh... oh, great. He's not putting up with my dumb ass anymore. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's funny because I was having the same thought as yeah, God, I'm still putting up with this dumbass. <laughs> so how are we doing this week, sir? I'm keen, man. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, before we get into this, you had a little magazine to talk about. <gasps> I did. It is the latest issue of Alter Ego Magazine. This is episode. Uh, excuse me, issue. Number 94, the June 2010 issue, sports an awesome cover on it by Joe Staten and Dick Giordano. What it is, is if you'll remember when we talked about when uh, All-Star Comics was canceled with number 74, the 75th issue was supposed to sport a cover that ended up being the opening splash page of the chapter, the first chapter of the JSA's uh, ongoing adventures in Adventure Comics. I forget what issue number that was. Anyway, what they have done was they have uh, basically touched up the art, colored it beautifully, and that cover functions as the cover for this. So it's uh, the Earth to Robin and the Huntress 
standing at the grave of the Earth 2 Batman while in the background all the uh, JSAers stand around looking very, very sad. This is part two of their coverage of ju- its a feature called Justice on Two Worlds. And it's really just a very in-depth look at the Justice Society of America and Earth 2, you know, their, their place in Earth 2 history between 1961 and uh, 1985. And this just continues the looks at all of their uh, peripheral adventures, like, uh, you know, just all over the place, like Showcase, World's Finest, Brave and the Bold, um, backup features like Dr. Fate and the Flash, Huntress in Wonder Woman, like we've been talking about, that sort of thing. But just everything's in here. It's really, really cool. Um, it's going to serve as a really nice resource for us as we make our way through um, all this material ourselves. There's a great article in here about Brave and the Bold, number 182, which was the story we just covered last time. Things like that. any sense of it? <laughs> I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I, I literally just got this a few days ago, and I, I've, I've had a chance to kind of flip through it, but haven't really... Uh, do, done any uh, in-depth reading at all. One thing I did note, though, and maybe it was in the last issue and I, I just missed it or, or failed to make note of it or whatever, I don't see the Whatever Happened to backup features from DC Comics Presents in here, but like I say, that maybe they covered that last time? I'm just not seeing it. But, uh, there's like the, the Mr. and Mrs. Superman stuff is covered in here. Just all kinds of stuff. But I like it because there was there's actually some things mentioned in here I was not aware of. Like uh, the New Adventures of Superboy, issues 15 and 16, had a backup story in it where the Superboy of Earth-1 met Clark Kent as a young man in the 30s on Earth-2 and actually, like, inspired him and everything. That was really cool. I had no idea of, of that story. I so completely forgot about those. Yeah. So, That's yeah, it'll be odd. interesting. Yeah. It'll be neat to go through this, and, and you know, it, it gives us uh, it gives us a focus of, of some things that uh, we, we definitely need to make sure that we cover or at least mention in passing, that sort of thing. So, And I found it very interesting as I was looking here. I was really, as I was flipping through, really trying to focus on our era, you know, our mandate and noting if there were things that we may have missed or that we didn't know about. And I noticed that they mentioned several Brave and the Bold issues. And I was like, wow, how did we miss that? And then I got to looking at what is covered here and their Brave, uh, excuse me, their Batman and Sergeant, and what, there's two stories that are Batman and Sergeant Rock, one story that's Batman and the Unknown Soldier and another story that's Batman and Blackhawk. That's how I missed them. Because I don't think of those as Earth 2 stories at all. I think of those as I just... Thought, I thought Sergeant Rock was Earth 1. See, I did too, yeah. And, you know, that, I don't think of that story in DC Comics Presents as an Earth 2 story, where, where Superman goes... I, I thought he just went back in time, didn't he? Yeah, that's that's what I thought too. That's very odd. So, yeah, I don't know. If, maybe these stories don't involve time travel. Maybe this is actually the, the Earth 2 Batman in World War II? I don't know. I See, I'm, I'm just... I'm not a war guy. I think of all of these issues they're showing here, I think the only one I may have is the Unknown Soldier one. I don't think I have any of the other. Maybe the Black Hawk one. Maybe. I'm not sure. But I, I know I, I don't, don't think have. I, ha- I don't think I have. I don't know if I have any of those. Yeah. 
So, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I might be content if, if we ever do do any quote-unquote coverage of that, just merely to mention whatever they mention about it in here. Yeah. A little bit, because... Yeah, I don't see where it pertains to our mandate necessarily, but I, I, it's wor- I thought it was worth noting anyway. It's interesting, but the, you know, definitely worth the money as a uh, as a reference tool for all this awesome Earth Two stuff. Really in depth, lots and lots of pictures. They now have a nice glossy color section right in the middle of the book, and uh, just some of the artwork and the uh, covers and things that are spotlighted. Really, really nice stuff. Like I said before, I'm not a regular um, purchaser or subscriber or anything to Alter Ego. I just happened to note this in the solicits a couple months back and thought, wow, that is so in our wheelhouse for this show. I've got to pick it up, and I'm really, really glad I did. So if you have the opportunity and the means... Pick it up, because uh, it's pretty keen. should be able to, if it all else fails, if you don't have the money for the full issues, buy a digital copy from TwoMoros.com, because they're usually only about $1.95 a piece. When, when I get out of the little whole line, man, I'm definitely going to go over there and order those two issues, because I used to collect Alter Ego pretty regularly, but they dealt with a lot of Golden Age stuff mm-hmm. and some Silver Age stuff that I just wasn't interested in. So I eventually let the let the title go, and uh, but I definitely got to pick those two up because that sounds like awesome sauce. It's pretty cool. I think it's worth it just for that cover alone. That cover is awesome. Well, speaking of covering stuff, <laughs> oh god, my side literally. Uh, yeah, if, if at any point tonight, folks, you hear me go ow in the middle of saying something, it's because I've done something to my ribs. I pulled a muscle or something, and it's been a painful couple of days. So, uh, oh, I was going to say something like, you know, oh, never mind. I won't, I won't say it because it's just too mean. I know you're in pain, so I just can't take cheap shots at, at your expense when I know that you're actually physically in pain. I'll just wait and keep take my cheap shots later. You know, it's, it's like what they say, you know, kick a man while he's down. What better time? I mean, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> we're going to jump right into our continuing coverage of All-Star Squadron with issue six of the title. This had a February, or as I like to say sometime, February 1982 cover date. Cover price was 60 cents cover by Rich Buckler and Jerry Ordway. Very nice cover that lies insanely. Once again, we have a cover of something that doesn't happen in the book itself. It does have a... uh, Do you have the barcoded cover or the regular cover? Or the uh, direct market cover? More new pages from the new DC. The new DC. There's no stopping us now from fucking over your childhood. Oh, I, I just I just say that because I'm I'm sick of the whole raping the childhood thing, so I say that in complete jest. Story title for this was Mayhem in the Mile High City. Twenty-seven pages of story, folks. Written by Roy Thomas, penciled by new penciler Adrian Gonzalez, and he actually does a really bang up freaking job too. Uh, inked as ever by Jerry Ordway, edited by Lynn Ween. Our roll call this month is Adam, Dr. Midnight, Firebrand, Hawk Girl, Hawkman, Johnny Quick, Liberty Bell, Robot Man, and The Shining Knight. 
And we begin with the Feathered Serpent continuing to rage about his plans to sacrifice Shara Sanders and to become the master of Mexico. I could really make like 16 jokes there. I'm just not going to. Both the Shining Knight and Hawkman <laughs> threaten the Serpent, who views this as their attempt to stall him. Because the stars are not in proper alignment for sacrificing, he tells his captives how he came to become the Feathered Serpent. He claims to have been born on the peninsula that they are now on, but was educated in the United States and Europe between the wars. He returned th there months ago as an archaeologist and discovered the hidden temple of... I always want to say Toucan Sam, but I'm sure it's Cool Cool Can or Cool Cool Con. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that. I do apologize for anybody in the audience that I may have offended with that. And what he considered his heritage. He found that he could read the ancient pictographs and control those who had kept their bloodlines pure. After a short, heated exchange with General Salkul, the Feathered Serpent finally gets around to the sacrifice. Shira surprises him and manages to kick free of her restraints. Chaos reigns as Hawkman and Shining Knight finally break their bonds as well, and begin to fight not only the minions of the Feathered Serpent, and, and the, but the Nazi soldiers as well. In the tumult, Shira manages to change into her guise as Hawkgirl, and joins her fiancé in battle. The Feathered Serpent takes advantage of the battle to kill General Salkul as his sacrifice, making me pretty damn happy because I didn't like the guy, and he gains the powers he had been boasting about. Realizing that Mexico City is in danger, the heroes quickly follow the villain as he races towards his conquest. In Mexico City, the citizens are shocked to see an Aztec pyramid burst from the ground. Those of pure blood also fall under the serpent's sway and begin to march up the pyramid. With weapons supplied by the Nazis, the mesmerized purebloods open fire on those who try to stop them. The Nazis are surprised to see Dr. Midnight, Firebrand, the Atom, and Johnny Quick start to fight against the spellbound purebloods. And every time I say purebloods, I think of uh, Deacon Frost in the first Blade film. You're not a pure-blood frost. <laughs> not far away at the National Palace, the Feathered Serpent arrives to slay President Camacho and assume his place as ruler of Mexico. Liberty Bell and Robot Man are there in disguise as well. Well, flimsiest damn disguises. God, I hate comic book disguises like this. And they protect the president after he defies the Feathered Serpent. After ringing Mexico's proud bell of freedom, Liberty Bell feels the same adrenal surge as when the Liberty Bell rings out in Philadelphia, and quickly the battle turns in their favor. The serpent charges at Bell after tossing her aside, but she manages to use his momentum against him, and he falls to, the de to uh, his death. Suddenly, the real feathered serpent flies by, and the heroes realize that the serpent they fought was a fraud and was somehow managing to hide an exoskeleton on an outfit that really pretty much exposes his entire upper chest. Don't quite know how that works. At the German embassy, the feathered serpent confronts the Nazi agents who sent the imposter to kill Camacho for their own ends. 
After informing them that he is the true ruler of Mexico, Hawkman, Hawkgirl, and Shining Knight arrive. As the Hawks tussle with the Nazis, the Shining Knight chases the Feathered Serpent back to the Pyramid. He manages to take out Johnny Quick before grabbing Firebrand, but Firebrand proves to be a poor hostage and uses her newfound abilities to set the Serpent's armor and wings on fire. The two begin to fall, but Firebrand is rescued by the Shining Knight. And she offers to give it up, and he's just like, I, I just want a, a, a handkerchief or something. Really, I'm, I'm good. Making me think weird things about Sir Justin. As the hypnotized purebloods begin to come out of their trance, the All-Stars discover that the Feather Servant is really Old Man Winters. And he would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for those pesky All-Stars. <laughs> he ran the haunted amusement park. <laughs> Actually, the Feathered Serpent is really a German, and that he wanted to to be his own power after discovering the secret of Kukul Khan. <sighs> yeah, <laughs> I've got like a boatload to say about this. He makes one last-ditch effort to kill the All-Stars with a hidden bomb, but Robot Man and a revived Johnny Quick waste no time in getting rid of it. Afterwards, President Camacho holds a celebration in honor of Mexico and the All-Star Squadron. Later that night... Baron Blitzkrieg and his friend Zwerg. Isn't he like the bad guy for Buzz Lightyear? I'm not That's sure. Zerg. Okay. The Zwerg. evil Emperor Zerg. I am your father. No! Uh, and his friend Zwerg discuss how it is his turn to carry the war to the United States itself. And woe to any hero that gets in his way. <sighs> well, I guess we should knock out the historical notes. Unfortunately, this issue was the late Adrian Gonzalez's first one as penciler. I had forgotten that he had passed away. That's very sad. When did he die? I don't know, but he is no longer with us. And that's really oh, sad because I really is... like the art in this issue. I, I think it, I mean, I don't know how much of it is Jerry Ordway keeping the same kind of style going, but uh, I'll get into that in a second. The Liberty Bell that Liberty Bell rings in the story first rang out in 1810 to announce Mexico's independence from Spain. President Manuel Avila Camacho was president of Mexico from 1940 to 1946. While he was certainly soured on the Nazis after this issue's adventure on Earth 2, it wouldn't be until May 22, 1942, that Mexico would declare war on Germany when German U-boats sunk uh, two ships carrying oil. Nearly a decade and a half before this issue saw print, Roy Thomas introduced a supervillain named Kukulkan in the pages of X-Men, who wore an outfit very much like the Feathered Serpents. The supposed Feather Serpent once again claims that he will be no quizzling and adds that he won't be a Patane either. French General Marshal Patain, who served in World War I, tarnished his reputation with the British and the Americans by heading the government of the Vichy France from 1940 to 1944. Vichy was the capital of the one-third of France that, while unoccupied by the Germans after their invasion of June of 1940, became p politically subservient to the Third Reich. And the last page of this issue, as I mentioned, introduces Baron Blitzkrieg into the series. On a personal note, I think that outside of Access America and the pages of Young All-Stars, Baron Blitzkrieg is the best damn villain the All-Star Squadron ever faced. I like Baron Blitzkrieg. Yep, I, I do too. really do. 
oh my god, what a great design. That is just an awesome costume. <sighs> He's one of these guys that every time he pops up in something, I, I find myself wishing I owned every uh, appearance of his and really knew more about him because the, the, right off the bat, I wonder, did, did he and Captain Nazi ever cross paths? Because that would have been really, like, to see the two of them team up and go kick some ass would have been awesome. But only, I don't think they ever did. We got to see Superman and Captain Marvel come in and take him out. But that's just right. Yeah, but that's that's what I mean. Is is because yeah, that's basically what you would have had was the Nazi equivalent of Superman and and Captain America or excuse me, Captain Marvel teaming up. So yeah. So what do you got for this issue? Oh my goodness. Uh, where to start here? Okay. Um, page three, or excuse me, page two rather. Panel three. We get <laughs> all right. All right, Shiera Sanders, right? She's tied up. She's on this altar, and she's looking over at these uh, these crates, and she says, if I could only get to my trunk over there, we'd at least make a heck of a threesome. And I'm thinking, oh, what is in those trunks? Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got... Uh, the feathered serpent in this one part, he keeps going on and on and on about how the stars aren't yet aligned. You, you know, rather than blah, just blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he says, uh, yeah, because it is still a few seconds until the stars, uh, will be in the right, will be right rather for the human sacrifice, which will usher in Mexico's new order. I shall indulge both your curiosity and my own triumphal whims. And I'm thinking, oh, must you really? Come on, dude. Just just, just do the human sacrifice already. You get it fucking over with, really. Seriously? Come on. <laughs> I don't want to hear your damn tale. He does go on for a long time, too. He doesn't like two pages, isn't it? Yeah. Is... There, there, there's one panel here that I'm sure you really enjoyed reading. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. So he's talking about how a while back, you know, he's, he's giving his origin story. He was going through the uh, the Yucatan looking for this temple. And he says, others have searched for this pyramid from the eminent J.L. Stevens, who I meant to look up, by the way. And a hundred years ago to my own contemporary professor, Indiana Jones. Now, I read that. And I was like, whoa, I had totally forgotten that. Yeah. He, you know, now Thomas hinted at Indiana Jones last time around, sort of, yeah. the Ark of the Covenant reference, but he comes right out and says it in this issue, which is really, really cool, but also prompted me to think, whoa, you know, what did, uh, what did Marvel, what did Lucasfilm think about this at the time? Because, you know, Marvel was publishing an Indiana Jones book. Well, maybe well, not. Maybe know, that- I think they were. Um, but here's the thing about that, because I was thinking about that, too. I think simply mentioning the character's name and not showing even like a shadow with a fedora, uh, I, I think that's okay oh, for okay. some reason. I, I don't know why I think that, but it's 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 just a reference. We don't actually see, you know, Indiana Jones approaching this um, this uh, Aztec pyramid with Doctor Octopus behind him, who's going to screw him over in the end, anyways. But uh, I always get a kick out of the fact that that was Alfred Molina in Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, <laughs> No, but I, I dig the shit out of that, though. I love the fact that he mentions Indiana Jones because, like we said last week, man, I want to see Carter Hall and Indiana Jones team up. Yes. Dark Horse and DC need to get that shit going, like, right now. 
<laughs> now, I like, for the most part, the um, historical references. Because mm-hmm. I really get the feeling that, that Roy Thomas is really trying to heavily make this feel like it like it's a period book like like these adventures really could have been taking place in 1942 or no, well, 41 it's still 41 at this point i i appreciate that and i really like that however sometimes they come off a little forced sometimes they come off a little awkward and the one that jumped out to me this time around was on page eight when Hawk Girl finally comes into action and Hawkman says, Hawk Girl! And she says, you were expecting maybe Amelia Earhart? And Amelia Earhart, by this point, had been missing for a good number of years. And I'm thinking it was probably long enough to where I'm I'm imagining that popular perception probably was that she was dead by this point. Yeah. So does that reference really work? I know that's an extreme nitpick, but I, I, I think I just think it's a little bit wonky. At least I thought so. I don't know. What do you think? A little bit. I mean, I, I, I think it's forced only in that it's a historical reference. Mm-hmm. Like, like, you know, it's kind of like when Marvel comics in the 70s and 80s would be like, you know, man, this is better than playing Asteroids. Right. So I, I think it's like that, but in reverse, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'll buy that. I'll completely buy that. So, yeah, that's, was... that's, that's what all that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> now, having read a lot of stories that have had Nazis in it in the comics over the years, I've seen the typical Nazi or excuse me, the typical German phrases that we will see over and over again, like Verdampt and uh gotten himmel and stuff like that but there was a new one on me here that i don't remember having seen before which was donnerwetter so i looked that up and it basically means the same thing as verdant it's like damned it's like saying damn or damn it or uh blasted or something like that one thing i looked up even said that it could mean my word like you know like people go my word i think of c3po when i hear that actually (laughs) so i just thought that was interesting um what else okay page 13 all right, this was a bit of a stretch, I thought. Okay, uh, the Adam and Firebrand, they're on the temple, and they're battling the whatever these guys are, the guys of pure Indian descent that are the duped zombie guys. And Adam makes a, a comment basically saying, gee, it sure is a good thing that that uh, Nazi captain that we beat the hell out of last issue told us exactly what was going on with these zombie guys and what the whole, you know, the feathered serpent's plan was and all that. I'm thinking, no, 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 that, that I don't buy that at all. How did this captain, this Nazi cap, how did he know what the hell the whole plan was with the feather, <laughs> feathered serpent out at this temple with, you know, and because I, I got the feeling that, even the general, the Nazi general, didn't really know the full plan. Yeah, that that is kind of stretching it a little bit. Not too much, because, you know, obviously we got to get these guys at this temple. You know, the plot's got to move along how the plot has to move along. But, yeah, I, can, I totally see that, actually. That's kind of odd. I, You know, I kind of had a similar note going, man, that's really convenient, <laughs> was my basic take on it. There was a reference here on page 18 
where one of the Nazi guys asked their boss, yeah, you know, what, what if the rest of the population of Mexico doesn't go for what we're setting up here? And the guy says, they will, Dumkoff. Dumkoff. He says, even if it takes the personal attention of Dr. Um, I think it's Goebbels. Is that how you pronounce his name? Goebbels? I've heard, I've heard uh, Goebbels and I've heard Goebbels. Okay. Uh, himself. And the guy's name rang a bell because, like you say, I've, I've heard of the dude, but I didn't really know who he was. Looked him up real quick. He was basically the Nazi minister of propaganda. Uh-huh. And if you take a look at his picture on uh, Wikipedia sometime, he was not a pretty man. Moving right along, uh, I also made a note of uh, Patain, so thank you for uh, for giving us that on that, because I kind of wondered about that dude. I, I basically found the same thing. Where it's Basically, he's like the French Benedict Arnold of World War II, is what it makes yeah. it sound like. Now, here's one for you. Sir Justin, on page 20, reminds us that uh, he's British, which is something that, strangely, I think you could easily forget that sort of thing. And I think that begs the question... What the hell is he doing in America fighting for us anyway? Why isn't he in Britain? Because at this time, weren't they under, like, they were getting, like, the shit bombed out of him by Nazis, right? That is a good question. It is resolved in an issue or two. Ah, okay. Cheating bastards, do you remember all this? I don't remember. Yeah, I'm cheating by remembering something I read three years ago. Oh, God, what a terrible person am I. I'm teasing. I hate you. Okay. Oh wait, I'm sorry. That came out wrong, and this oh, is the wrong show. Jesus Christ, you're, dude! You're not, you're not usually the co-host. I say I hate. So there you go. Oh, oh. <laughs> hey, I'll bet you tell your other co-host that too, though. Uh, um. Yes, it's part of the from crisis to crisis drinking game. As a, a matter of fact, when. when... <sighs> That's it. I'm done. I'm gone. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving right along. All right. One of these days, dude, seriously, we have got to do a show on Back to the Bins about comic book cliches that we never, ever, ever, ever want to fucking see in a comic book again. Because there's some of them I'm really tired of. Now, granted, that comes from over 30 freaking years of reading comic books. But, okay, this one drives me crazy. Where you've got a foreign dude. Could be any nationality whatsoever. In this particular instance, happens to be a Mexican dude. Well, as it turns out, happens to be a German disguised as a Mexican dude. Now, don't get me started on that bullshit. Anyway, he says, uh, he's, he's flying away and he says, I'll risk nothing to save your treacherous hides, Nazis. I have now, how do the gringos say it? Other fish to fry. I hate this expression in comic books. I hate when the foreign dude struggles to remember what the idiom is and says, how do you say, and then delivers it perfectly. They do this shit all the time. It makes you know, me you know crazy. What my response, you know what my response to that is? Is how you say other fish to fry. I always want to go other fish to fry. <laughs> I mean, do foreign people really do that? I mean, I've I don't. Heard- I don't know. I, I, you know, every time I have spoken to somebody who um, who doesn't speak the best English, they usually just kind of struggle to find the way to say it. They never go, "Well, how do you say this?" They say what they think it is in kind of a questioning way, like, right. "Is this right?" Right. It, you know, instead of saying, you know, like how you say other fish to fry, it's uh, I have uh, other fish to fry. And then you can kind of correct them or say that they didn't, you know, they said it right anyways. And I'm sure the same thing would happen if I was in Germany or I was in Spain. 
I mean, I was in another non-English speaking country and would be trying to get the phrase right. Uh, but I, but I don't think I would ever say, and I've never heard anyone actually say how you say. I mean, I've heard, I've had people ask me before, you know, ask me that, that phrase, you know, how do you say this? Or, or they'll be speaking and they'll say something like this. And like you say, they'll struggle and invariably they don't get it right. It, it, they're trying to use a, 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 a I, I think idiom is the right expression. That's a good way to, to say it, yeah. And, and, but they, they get it just slightly off. So this one, I guess the reason this bugs me is that they, they say this, how do you say, and then they always seem to get it right. They don't, yeah. they don't ever, it, I don't know. Is it just me? This sort of thing drives me crazy. I really get tired of the, the, the cliches, it, it the overused cliches. No, no. I, I'm right there with you, sir. I really am. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Okay, this one's a doozy. All right, page 22, panel 2. They're looking out the window, and we've got Hawkman, Hawk Girl, and the Mexican president whose name, what is it, Camacho? Camacho. Camacho, there we go. They're looking out the window, and they're admiring uh, Danette Riley's resourcefulness or something to that. I'm uh, sure that's what they're admiring. Yeah, and, and Hawkman actually says, or actually the president says, uh, not without causing her death, surely. And uh, Hawkman says, don't be too sure. From what I've seen of Firebrand so far, she's pretty resourceful. <clears throat> Wrong. He's not only seen her in costume for like five minutes when they were in her brother's apartment. And then they all flew to Mexico and then they all split up. He has yeah. not seen her in action as Firebrand in either of these two stories. I always assumed he just said she, she was pretty resourceful at setting her brother's apartment on fire. <laughs> Maybe that was like some World War II expression for she's got a nice butt. They said resourceful. <laughs> she's got a sweet ass. <laughs> All right, I must take exception to what you were saying and being a dirty, filthy pervert about the last panel of page 22 I'm because I found moment, it. Right? Okay, I'm going to remember what? this moment. I'm going to remember this moment right now. All right, okay. So I'm going to call your ass out on something in the future <laughs> when you do the same goddamn thing. I you call me out all the time. What are you talking about? But no, I, I liked this moment between the two of them, and I cannot for the life of me remember if we're actually seeing the beginnings of a love connection here, but I like this moment between I thought it was very I'll you know, he's a, he's a, he's a knight from Arthurian times, you know, he he's he's very um I don't know what the hell the word I I'm struggling but noble chivalrous, there we go. Thank you, chivalrous, yeah. So, you know, yeah. I like that. Because I mean, all she's offering is a kiss, which uh -huh. you know, in, in, you know, to us seems very, oh yeah, sure, lay one on me, babe. And and but he's, you know, like you say, chivalrous, and he says, you know, he'll he'll accept a scarf as a token. I, I thought that was nice. And didn't they sort of do that sort of thing back then, where they took like a article of clothing? I'm sure, according to the mythology of King Arthur, they did. I'm sure the reality of the situation was extremely different. Well, I don't know. I mean. Uh, now, I know this is an extreme stretch, and I don't know why I remember this tidbit of information, but I know that there was a dude on the on the Titanic, a survivor, that uh, actually had, what was it, his firstborn's bonnet that he carried with him all the time or some, something to that effect. So, I don't know. I mean, people have strange uh, superstitions and, and that sort of, I don't know. Anyway... 
I loved the <laughs> page 23. I should have hated I should have really hated this. This should have been one of those things where you know, I really want to rip on this. I, I have a feeling you're going to. But uh-huh. rather than rip on it, I'll just sum it all up with just <sighs> However, having grown up with Scooby Doo, I couldn't help but get to the end of in this reveal and go like you said, it's old man winners who ran the haunted amusement park. It just cracked me up because, okay, I wasn't all this keen, all that keen on this story to begin with. I was getting a little tired of the feathered serpent by the end of the story, but this point where he's all messed up and revealed to be a Nazi agent, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll leave that for you to run with. Okay. I'm sure I'm going to agree with you. I'll, I'll get to it when I get to it in my notes. So Okay. I love this kind of comic book story, though. They can do this all the time, and it would make me so happy because I love it when I, when I realize these things. You get to the end of this story, right? Everybody's okay. The president's life has been – the Mexican president's life has been saved. All the, the citizens are standing around, and they're chanting, Viva Mexico! Viva los Estados Unidos! Viva El, uh, El uh, All-Star Squadron. Everybody's cheering. The All-Stars are posing beautifully for their picture. All, you know, Everything's happy and everything. Uh, yeah. In the meantime, the streets are littered with the corpses of thousands of innocent Mexicans who were slain for no good reason whatsoever. I, I think we're just supposed to forget about that little fact, but yeah, forget. At this point. <laughs> who the hell is Lieber Schwerg? Huh? Ah, last page, first panel. Well, my Lieb- Lieber Schwerg. Now it's my turn. I tried to look this up and I couldn't find anything. Is that like a term of endearment? Is that somebody's name? What? I don't, I'm sorry. I give just. Me, give me just a second. I know shit about German, to be honest with you. I, sometimes I can recognize and figure these things out, but that one, that one threw me. While you're looking that up. I will just echo your sentiments about Baron Blitzkrieg. He, when I turned that page and saw him, I was like, hell yeah. And I, I can't tell you why I like these guys, like him. And Captain Nazi's the same way. When Captain Nazi turns up in a story, or the Masterman over in, uh, I think that's his name, Masterman? Captain America bad guy over in Captain America? Yes, Masterman. Yeah, I love those guys. I mean, no, don't get me wrong. I don't admire them or something. I mean, I hate Nazis just as much as everybody else, but they are the ultimate scumbag bad guy. So when you get a super Nazi, it's somehow it's that much cooler in a like totally not at all cool way, if you know what I mean. So, you know what would be really cool? I know he's way too old to do this shit now. It would be cool if at some point Indiana Jones had fought some some form of super Nazi. <laughs> I, I don't mean like flying and shooting beams out of his eyes or ass or anything like that, but just, you know, because there was the one, I can't remember what the guy's name was now, the the head Nazi guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and damn, I can't believe I'm blanking. Yeah, I can't, I can't, I can't remember his name anyway either, so that's very odd. But he originally, if you ever get a chance to take a peek at the um, illustrated screenplay for... Raiders of the Lost Ark. That dude was actually supposed to be a cyborg. And somewhere along the... Really? Yeah, yeah, he was. Wow. I've got a picture somewhere of him. He has a... Basically like a blaster hand. You know, like a... It was some sort of... 
mechanical hand that ended in it looked like it would like fire like a like a bolt or something. I, I you know, or maybe a machine gun. Maybe it was a machine gun hand, something like that. Anyway, but yeah, he was going to be a, a, some sort of uh, not maybe not necessarily a cyborg, but he was going to have some sort of. Um, you know, art, uh, for artificial limb. I'm forgetting the the term for that. Um, prosthetic. Prosthetic. Thank you, okay. man. I'm just struggling with words tonight. Yeah, prosthetic. That was actually. Uh, now that I think about it, I think it was a machine gun. So yeah. What about Alrighty. Been... Mein Lieber means my dear. Mm-hmm. So it's just like my dear Scott. Zwerg uh... means dwarf. <laughs> okay. Oh, all right. I see. See, I thought that dude was like coming up the no, shore he, he, he's or short. stairs. And, and, oh, and, I got. And you. he actually named the the character dwarf in German because I just typed into Google Translate Mein Lieber's Word, and it translate as to my dear dwarf. So there you go. <laughs> all right. So this Nazi, you know. this Nazi dude standing next to Blitzkrieg is is actually a dwarf. Then yes. Okay. See, I just don't get that from from what little we see here. It's I, in I the guess, first panel. He's standing right next I, to him. I he see that now, head. but because it was in the dark, and yeah. he, you know, in the very next panel, he says um, he talks about the U-boat. I guess what I thought I was seeing in that panel was somebody coming up over the side of the uh, of that little cliff that Blitzkrieg is standing at. You see, you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, but I, I, should, I should have noticed because in the very next panel, like you say, yeah, there, you can clearly see that there's the caped man standing there and then like a shorter person standing next to him. But I, I just, somehow I just missed that entirely. I didn't catch that it was a little person. So cool. All righty. My notes. Um, I actually liked the feathered serpent a little more in this issue, mainly because I kind of dug his origin until the very end. <laughs> and I also liked the fact that he turned out to be like a true supervillain. Like he started flying and he had super strength and stuff. I kind of dug that. Roy Thomas does something I don't think a lot of people do. He uh, he mentions that Sir Justin's armor is invulnerable. In fact, Sir Justin manages to escape because he keeps scraping the ropes against his own armor, which I thought was cool. But when the general goes after him with the sword... It clanks on him, and basically Sir Justin says, in effect, well, the sword's invulnerable, but my armor's invulnerable. What did you think was going to happen? And I was like, that's awesome. That someone can't use his own sword against him because the armor is just as invulnerable as the sword, and they kind of cancel each other out. That's great. I like that. I do, too, and I agree with you, except for one thing. Then why didn't he just stab him in the face? <sighs> yeah, why don't people just shoot Batman in the in the, well, in the it, mouth? I mean, exa- well, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, I wasn't asking that facetiously. I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, why yeah. don't people just simply shoot Batman in the mouth? <laughs> because then there wouldn't be any other Batman stories. Um, okay. <laughs> I was going to go into a goofy note, but I'm going to I'm going to instead I'm going to take a serious note. I really dug the artwork in this issue. I miss Rich Buckler, but Adrian Gonzalez is a very able replacement for him. The battle scenes in this issue fucking just pop off the page. The uh like page, for example, page 7, that bottom panel of 
Shining Knight just kicking ass all over the place. That mm-hmm. is just a great image. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, ah, oh, that's so awesome. So I'm, I'm really glad. Because usually when, you know, an artist you like leaves, he's replaced by someone you don't like. You know, that that's usually how it works, unfortunately. And in this case, especially because you have Jerry Ordway inking it, so you can kind of keep in that same style that you'd been seeing for five issues that works out but i think roy thomas also probably i don't have this might be said in an interview and that's where i'm remembering this from i haven't reread all those interviews yet but he probably just wanted a consistent look for the book he didn't want something like jarring right uh going from one issue to another to keep a consistent uh feel for the for the artwork so my hat's off to the late adrian gonzalez for the work in this issue it is just freaking awesome um in the hawkman's a big old dick department page eight uh then i've got to find shira she's crawled off somewhere hope she's all right poor kid she must be frightened out of her and the next thing we see is shira coming in and kicking all kinds of ass and it's just like god you're you're a, you're a son of a bitch, you know that? She, she's your fiancé, she's your partner as Hawk Girl, and you think this is just going to frighten her? Dude, she's been biding her time this entire... You know, well, she wanted to get, apparently get into a threesome. But, you know... <laughs> I just I just think that's... Hawkman's wonky as hell character-wise throughout this entire issue. He really is. Um, I have to admit, despite the fact... That that I that I, I I made a pretty much clear sense of it in the synopsis. Even in rereading this, the middle part of this issue, where the Germans are giving the pure blood uh, Aztec people machine guns, this isn't really clear storytelling at all. Uh, I don't think it's the artist's fault. I think it's somewhat of Roy Thomas just assuming we'll know what's going on by what little he's giving us. And I don't need to be spoon-fed, but i got to admit, it took me a couple of times going, what the, oh, okay, oh, right. okay, yeah. oh, that makes sense, oh, okay. <laughs> it does? <laughs> it makes as much sense as anything, I guess. Okay, you were talking about comic cliches you hate and never want to see again. I'm going to go over my two. Uh, one, that in page 14 second panel you see a woman sitting there with black hair uh dressed in a uniform ain't no fucking way that's liberty bell (laughs) no (laughs) the rubber mask on robot man i don't like that either but no you're not going to tell me that's her in disguise that's a bunch of no um and the reveal of the feathered serpent being a nazi Here's my problem with it. It's not so much that it was revealed that he was a Nazi. It's not so much revealed that he basically painted himself to look uh, like he is from that region. My problem is, we live in Georgia. Right now it's July. It's hot as hell and it's humid. You walk outside and the first thing that happens is your forehead feels like someone just dabbed it with a wet sponge. Mm Mm-hmm. That makeup should have been pouring off of him throughout this entire storyline. I don't know what kind of air conditioning they have in those Aztec temples, but my God, someone should have noticed, hey, he's wearing body paint. That just bugs the piss out of me. It really does. And that's why, because it doesn't make sense. 
Well, let me ask you this. You, you've seen The Rocketeer, right? Yes. You remember the part in The Rocketeer as soon as – and I'm going to spoil a part of that movie. So if you do not want to be spoiled on the end of The Rocketeer, skip ahead a second. You remember when uh, Neville Sinclair is revealed to be the Nazi spy toward yes. the end of the movie? Instantly, instantly, Timothy Dalton switches to a German accent uh-huh. for the rest of the movie. Always bothered me. Always bugged me. I can see that. And they do the same shit here. As soon as the Feathered ser- Serpent is revealed to be a Nazi... He switches to German speak, and it's like, what? It just, I don't know. It drives me a little bit crazy. It really does. I, I realize what they're going for, but that sort of thing always bugs me. Because that, that, if you'll forgive the expression, is comic booky. And yeah, I love comics, but I don't like comic booky because I, I, it, it, that's where the, the negative uh, stereotype comes from. Indeed. No, I, I agree with you completely on that. Um, my last two notes are the exoskeleton that was hidden, on the, guy, <laughs> the bare-chested guy. No, not going to work for me. Having said all of that, though, even though my little nitpicks and my little pithy comments aside, I really enjoyed this issue much more than I enjoyed the last issue because I told you that I liked the overall plot, but I didn't like the Feathered Serpent. In this issue, I really kind of dug what was except for the end where it was revealed that he was a Nazi, which is a cool reveal. It just, it doesn't hold up on closer scrutiny basically. Right. But the whole story was really kind of cool. And I love the fact that we end it with everyone celebrating the all-star squadron. And, uh, yeah, God, this was a violent issue. There were a lot of people just (laughs) freaking dying throughout this entire issue. Mm -hmm. Right. They just kind of gloss over it. It's like you want yeah. to, you know, if we were going to George Lucas this, we would have like, well, every, you know, that la- that second to last page, that behind the the All Star Squadron, you have people like carrying out cadavers on stretchers and stuff like that. Right, because back on page eleven, it says, uh, where is it? Within minutes, the center of the uh, city is alive with those of pure Indian descent walking amid strangled corpses <laughs> of like- many who were not. So yeah, we we just kind of I guess we're kinda supposed dark. to yeah we're supposed to have just kind of forgot about that because it's got a nice pretty picture as the uh, next to last page of everybody cheering the all stars which yeah not a uh, not good and I have to say I have to be completely honest if this book had ended on page twenty six I don't think I I don't I really don't think I could give this issue a thumbs up but the pure fact that yeah. it ends where it ends with the reveal it has on that very last page just totally pushed it over the edge into yeah this is awesome well you know speaking of that page 26 we got this amir does the atom look like i'm not gonna pose in this picture i don't like you guys you guys are always making fun of me i'm sick of this group man i feel so short i don't have any superpowers god this stuff pisses me off i'm just gonna sit here and sulk you know what he needs he needs an adamantium skeleton and some claws (laughs) <laughs> let's not make him annoying um, one thing I do want to mention on uh, the very first page and this is something that Roy Thomas does throughout the first le- uh, leg of this series the date Wednesday December mm-hmm. 10th 1941 I like that 
I like that we're getting specific dates and he's playing, even though a month has passed since the last issue, he's playing very tight with the continuity of the story. Right. And I dig the hell out of that. And yeah, Baron Blitzkrieg on the last page. Awesome. If it's not terribly spoilerific, because I actually need to know this information for a specific reason. Do you remember what date we are up to at the end of this series? It's somewhere late in 1942, because I know, okay. I think in Young All-Stars, it's either in Young All-Stars or towards the end of All-Star Squadron that we actually get to the Battle of Midway. Okay. And I think the, that was in 42. The reason I ask, and I, I guess if you if you don't edit this part out, then this will be a look behind the curtain, but the reason I ask is because I've been trying to figure out exactly when we want to cover Superman versus Wonder Woman. And a note in that Alter Ego magazine places that story sometime in 1943. Yeah. So I'm thinking that we should cover it actually in some form of progression through All-Star and uh, Young All-Stars. Well, so I'm starting I, think, to th- I think we should do it before the switchover from the crisis. Okay. Because that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. Because that makes more sense. Okay. But I'm I'm itching to do that one because again that's yes. got a that that was my introduction as a kid to Baron Blitzkrieg and I think that's why one of the reasons I always liked him is I'm I'm always uh, a sucker for villains that can stand up to Superman and mm-hmm. he completely stands up to Superman in that one I really uh, really like that one. Um, gonna be completely honest, the ads really suck in this issue, except for the hostess ads, so I don't really have yes. anything to say about any of them, because they're all model kit ads, it seems. I do have one thing before we do get to that, though. Um, there was one paragraph of one of the letters that I actually I, I thought it was pretty cool. It's from a, a reader that writes in I have no idea how you pronounce this last name. I'm gonna say Glass. Andy Glass is G-L-A-E-S-S. He writes and he says, uh, Dear DC, he says, if anyone is capable of making the Justice Society or All-Star Squadron a success, it's Roy Thomas. Uh, Through my years of reading comics, I learned time and time again that nobody writes the adventures of superhero teams better than Roy. Not Stan Lee, not Gardner Fox, nobody. Rich Buckler, for his part, is vastly underrated and an incredibly versatile artist, and also has the experience of having worked on superhero teams before with Roy. Although it hurts to think how much comics cost these days, this mag is well worth 60 cents. I like that for so many reasons, because for one, I agree very, very much with what you know with his sentiments about Roy mm-hmm. Thomas. Yes, I completely agree, and was just spouting off a few episodes ago on Back to the Bins about uh, how underrated uh, Rich Buckler is, and I always get a kick out of looking back at when people were bitching about the price of cheap ass comics. <laughs> Sixty cents, really? Yeah, really, because I would have been buying two of everything. Yep. <laughs> um, he, Andy is also the one that pointed out the mistake of the uh, the B twenty nine right bomber that they were flying, which didn't come into existence until nineteen forty four. So it did not exist in December nineteen forty one. But yeah, no, I'll, I'll completely agree with that too. I think Roy Thomas in the sixties, seventies, and eighties was 
was pretty much the best superhero team writer working in comics. He really was. He he had, outside of the fact that everybody had to talk, mm-hmm. when sometimes not everybody has to talk, uh, he had a, a good ability to balance out the action and the soap opera elements of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, he made you care about the characters, but at some point that issue, there was going to be a throwdown. And I really, really liked that. I really would have liked to have seen what he would have done with the actual Justice League. Uh, but when he came to DC, he kind of staked out his claim of the Earth 2 characters. And God love DC for letting him do that. Yes. Because because we, we're, we're getting this series and we get so much more. We get so many great stories. There's a bunch of DC Comics Presents he wrote with Superman meeting Captain Marvel that are pretty awesome as well. So we want to we want to read this uh, this hostess ad. I do. I'm struggling to find it as we speak. Which uh, which pages are it crossed from? Give me just a second. I can't find it all of a sudden. <laughs> I had it two seconds ago. Oh, it's across from page nine. Nine. Okay. Oh, I'm way too far. That's my problem. Okay. Who do you want to play? Well, I know that you really, really, really like The Flash, and I know that you really like this version of The Flash, so I will be everybody else if you want me to. Okay. I will even set it up and transition us from scene to scene, because I really like panel two. All right, this is The Flash in Marathon Madman. And we see... Barry Allen, he's getting an ass chewing from his boss. He says, I expect to see you running your fastest in the police department's marathon today, Barry. Gee, it's going to be hard for me, Flash, to slow down. Next day at the race, and we see Barry Allen. He's dressed in his, uh, what we, back back in the day, we lovingly called these nut hugger shorts. <laughs> oh, God, you had to set me up with that, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Something's fishy. Something fishy is going on up there. The Flash better have a look. Doctor Sorcery. His Philosopher's Stone has weakened. Doctor <clears throat> Sorcery. Why isn't that freaking Doctor Alchemy? Anyways, it should be Harry Potter. <laughs> Doctor Sorcery. His Philosopher's Stone has weakened the steel beams of the bridge. <laughs> that ought to make the race more challenging. Here's something that ought to challenge your taste buds, Dr. Sorcery, while I see if I can get this bridge to be a bridge again. Hostess Cupcakes, what chemistry, what taste, rich chocolatey cake, rich chocolatey icing. Plenty more at the finish line, Doc, but you can't get there unless you help me fix the bridge. Then we see everybody gathered around the finish line, and this dude goes, Oh, wait, no, that's a Dr. What's-His-Face, isn't it? Okay. I thought, the, I thought the word balloon was aiming at the other guy. He says, you want Flash, Hostess Cupcakes, make this race worth finishing. Speaking of finishing, oh, God. Oh, that's the boss. Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of finishing, if we're going to wait for Barry Allen to finish, we've got plenty of time to enjoy our Hostess Cupcakes. What is this asshole's problem with Barry Allen, anyway? I don't know. Barry Allen always had a boss that wanted to chew his ass out, which is better than wanting to eat his ass out, so. <laughs> At least that's, that's disgusting. <laughs> My wife just said, "Well, that is finishing." Oh, oh! Every, every, every once in a while, she comes up with a zinger. 
There's not a whole lot of uh, of really good wonkiness to pick on. I mean, there is. Yeah. But the panel I like is if 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 Flash was more of a tough guy, and this panel where he's saying, "Here's something that ought to challenge your taste buds." <laughs> I'm thinking of saying something like, <laughs> "I don't know." Here, I'll put my foot in your ass or something like. I mean, all the he's he's an old wizard dude. What? <laughs> What is so hard about the, the... Wait a second. The line should be, if you want something to challenge your taste buds, I'll put my foot so far up your ass, you'll be tasting my cleats. <laughs> All right, that's perfect. I like that. Oh, my God. You know, that dude totally looks like Kenny Rogers in that first panel on the very bottom of the page. He does. <laughs> Holy shit, it's the gambler. <laughs> No, wait, that was a different villain. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I'm done with this issue. Yeah, what you... I, I, I'm done with it, too. Let's uh, let's move on to elsewhere in the DC multiverse. Sweet. And right away, I see something really, really nice. What's that? <sighs> Best of DC number 21. I have got to get a copy of this. Yeah, man, it's a George Perez cover of the Justice Society uh, basically building what looks like on the back of the new pennies now. Uh, Have you seen the new pennies? Mm, I don't think so. They have kind of a shield on them now. It's kind of cool. Captain America's shield? No. uh, Well, his old shield, kind of. But no, this... uh, No, and and, and actually Roy Thomas mentions this, this best of in the letters page. Let me get to that so I can read it properly. Another nostalgic note, we just wanted to make sure that no loyal fans of All-Star Squadron and or the original Justice Society of America accidentally miss out on our special Justice Society issue of our The Best of DC slash Blue Ribbon Digest series now on sale. Editor Len Wein has packaged two JSA tales, which form an integral part of the background of these first few issues of DC's newest hit, namely The Day That Dropped Out of Time from All-Star Comics number 35, 1947, The Deathless Adventure, which introduced the time-altering Per Degaton to a waiting world, and the exciting, all-important, untold origin of the Justice Society from DC Special number 29 back in 77. See, who said you had to be the... He had to be 50 years old in order to understand what's going on in initiating the All-Star <laughs> Squadron. As somebody once said, we do it all for you. And I think it's awesome that they plan to have this come out right when All-Star Squadron was starting. That's really cool. Oh, who's, who's, oh, now I can hear that song and I can't remember what company. Who, who was it that said, we do it all for you? I remember that jingle. It's like, we do it all for you. I don't know. Wasn't it like... Burger King or some I shit? Oh, I don't remember. Oh, usually man. I'm very good at that. Yeah. I like I, I like like double double check checks better better than than the the rest rest. Oh man. Can't remember the periodic table. Remember that shit. <laughs> you know, there are many awesome covers this month and it seems like uh George Perez has got the lion's share of them cuz I'm looking at this great cover to uh, Justice League of America 199 where uh, the time... What's this dude's name? Master of Time? Or Time Lord? Lord? Of time. Lord of Time, that's it. He says, the JLA is helpless against my animator sphere. He says, now nothing can stop me from becoming Master of the World! And you see Superman over there ready to deliver a serious beat to his ass saying, wanna bet? 
I love it. I love. I don't think you're actually supposed to know that that's Superman, but it is. It's don't piss off Superman. Yeah. Now this is part two of the story that involves the Justice League of America with uh, DC's Western characters and does have Jonah Hex in it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Jonah Hex, right below that, yeah, Jonah Hex number fifty-seven. That's a neat cover. I'm trying to remember what the hell the story is in this one. And I'm thinking this may be the one where Hex meets back up with his mother again, but I can't, I honestly can't. It's he, he's, he's involved in a good old-fashioned bar brawl, and he's turning as a woman standing in the doorway says, Stop, Jonah. It's time to pay the debt. But I can't remember what the hell that story is. But I know that somewhere in that run, he did, uh, he did eventually reunite briefly with his mom. I think that may be the issue. I'm not sure. Love the cover, the Gene Cullen cover to uh, Wonder Woman number 288. Wonder Woman is busting loose. That's when she got her new insignia. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We will be covering this at some time, folks. I don't know exactly when, but the uh, Dr. Fate gets a backup in The Flash starting this month in number uh, 306. Now, you know that I... Oh, I'm sorry. Haven't quite figured out how we're going to do that yet, though. Yeah, I'm not. Haven't quite figured out I want to do that, but yeah, we'll we'll figure it out somewhere down the the road. Um, now you know that I love me some uh, some Carmen Infantino, but I just got to call it like I see it. That's one ugly cover right there. Yep. Ugly <laughs> <Okay>. as hell. <laughs> All well, right. You know my you know my opinion of Carmen Infantino in this run of the Flash. I don't like it. Mm-hmm. I think no, it's I a pale, pale imitation to uh to what he did before i don't blame you at all you know until you enlarge the picture just looking at the tiny little thumbnail that's on this page doesn't that totally look like that's um miracle man clocking supergirl on the cover of superman family right there yes it does and i just got that issue in the mail Um, it's (laughs) super sweet i want a lot of Superman Family. 20 issues of Superman Family. Only two doubles in that 20 issues. 18 issues for 16 bucks. Now, if you'll forgive an old man his nostalgic uh, indulgences for just a moment, I, like it was yesterday, I remember buying or possibly stealing, I can't remember, this issue of The Phantom Zone number 2 off the rack out of phase in Watertown, New York, when I was a wee lad of, well, let's see, I would have been 13 years old. And this was my introduction to the Phantom Zone miniseries. And it would be many, many years before I actually tracked down a copy of issue one. So I jumped into that story right here with issue two, and it completely blew me away because this is, if my memory serves, the bloodiest chapter of a very bloody story where uh, the Phantom Zone, there's a couple of them in particular, just completely cut loose in that story. Plus, I just love the cover. You've got Superman and Quexel are trapped in the Phantom Zone and watching as, um, let's see here, we've got Cruel, General Zod, and what the hell is that, Vacox? Is that his name? Something like that, Vaox. Yeah. 
Yeah, and they're standing around, and uh, and General Zod is just ecstatic, and he's pointing his hand up, and he's going, "We've won! Supergirl is dead!" And she does look pretty dead on the cover right there. Plus, Earth under siege, guest starring Batman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Zatanna. Now it's really funny. Zatanna is cover credited here. Um, I think she's got like a one panel cameo. Does not speak. Yet the Flash and Elongated Man are in it, do speak, and they don't get the cover <laughs> credit. So it's actually pretty funny. New Teen Titans number 16. Um, not a monumental issue of that series. Pretty good one, though. Because this is when the New Teen Titans was really hitting its stride. But it also has a 16-page preview of Captain Carrot and his zoo crew. <laughs> yes! I really need to pick those back issues up, but they're hard as hell to find. I found and they're expensive. There is a reference. Oh, uh, I'll tell you what. Pick out another one and, and and stall for time as I see if I can find this here. Oh wait, I found it already. Here it is. The All Stars actually have a cameo says here a one panel cameo in captain Kara and his amazing zoo crew number 15 from may of 1983 it was uh yeah but it's really cool it's got uh you see uh the huntress dr fate green lantern and power girl are confronting uh the zoo crew and they're all dressed up like the justice league and power girl's giving them a dressing down she says listen I don't care if it is an annual tra- tra- uh, if it is an annual tradition. I'm not working with a team of funny animals. <laughs> well, Roy Thomas wrote that series, so. Oh, did he? I didn't know that. Yes, he created the Zoo Crew. Other than that preview that you were just talking about, that doesn't that show Superman chained up with kryptonite chains or something mm-hmm. on the cover? Of it? Yeah. Other than that, I don't know that I've ever read anything else with the uh, with the Zoo Crew. Well, that's pretty much all I got for this issue, for this uh, elsewhere. A uh, good month, but just not too much to talk about, really. Um, yeah, you know. the, the only other one uh, I just want to mention real quick was I love the cover of uh, World's Finest. What is this? Two seventy six. Another uh, George Perez, just really awesome with Superman just bopping the hell out of somebody. But Dr. yeah, Doctor Double X. I'm not kidding. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I haven't been reading Who's Who lately. What are you talking about? <laughs> Throws down the smoke bomb and tries to run away. Oh, here you go, Mike. Here would be a good place for you to play that file that I sent to you a while ago because here, Action Comics number 528 shows Superman and uh, Brainiac. And uh, you know yeah. why Brainiac's doing what he's doing in this era. Because he wants pants. will come to order. The Legion of Doom is now in session. In a short while, the super... Uh, yes, Brainiac. I was wondering, Luthor, if I could perhaps get a pair what of... What we need uh, are a few items to help us in our perfect plan to stop the super friends. Cheetah, you have razor-sharp claws. Brainiac, your mind games are deadly. Scarecrow, you're, you're, you're made of straw. What more do you need? How about utility belt? What? Batman and Robin have them. Solomon Grundy want one, too. With utility belt, Bizarro will crush the super friends. Crush them! I want a magic lasso, Lex. Can I get a seahorse? I demand more toys! 
Oh, enough of this! What do I look like, Santa Claus? We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my dream reverberator is changing the Super Friends into our slaves. Uh, excuse me. Brainiac, what is it? Look, I just want some pants. A decent pair of pants. <laughs> Solomon Grundy want pants too. He was a hero to some a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gun smoke. Death and the Acrid Smell of Gunsmoke, the Jonah Hex Podcast. Available Thursdays at two true freaks.libson.com. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big pain. Wherever there's a pain, you'll find the Spider Man. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang.
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Hi, my name is Paul Spataro. Back in 2004, my family lost my older brother Michael to pancreatic cancer. Before Michael was diagnosed with this disease, I really didn't know too much about it. But the truth of the matter is, it's a devastating disease, and in general, once somebody is diagnosed with it, it's too late to actually help them. I've learned that pancreatic cancer is the nation's fourth leading cause of cancer death, and that the survival rate for the disease has not improved in 25 years. I also learned about the Lustgarden Foundation. That's a foundation that's named after a man named Mark Lustgarden. Mr. Lustgarden was a high-ranking executive in the company of Cablevision, and when he was diagnosed with the disease, despite the fact that he was a wealthy man, there was nothing that could be done, and unfortunately, he passed away from the disease as well. Moved by that loss, Cablevision has started a foundation in his honor, and they've generously underwritten all expenses of that foundation so that any fundraising efforts can be used strictly towards research of pancreatic cancer. I learned of the Lust Garden Foundation shortly after my brother passed away, and I started that year walking in its Long Island fundraiser walk, and I've walked every year since. This year, the walk is going to be on July 25th. I will be walking along with my wife, my son, my daughter, my mother, my sister, and other family members. We walk as Team Spataro in an effort to raise funds, raise awareness, and to honor my brother. I hope you would consider donating to this worthwhile cause. There will be a link to our team page on this podcast's homepage. Please consider clicking on that link and donating. And keep in mind, no amount is too small. There will be people who donated very, very generously. But don't be swayed by that. Any amount will help and brings us that much closer to a cure. Nobody should have to suffer the way my brother did, and I hope that one day, through the efforts of the Lust Garden Foundation, all such suffering can be ended. I thank you for your consideration. Journey now to an unfamiliar world. Not the one where the heroes of the Justice League stand proud, but Earth 2. Where Helena Wayne carries on her father's mission by battling crime as... The Huntress. Okay, welcome back to the final segment of the show. We're going to look at three backup features from Wonder Woman's numbers uh, 274 through 276. These are Huntress backup stories. So looking at the first one from Wonder Woman number 274, it's got a nice cover on it by Ross Andrew. The uh, title of the Huntress story in this one is The Speaker in the Shadows. Now, the creative team for all three chapters is the same, so I'm just going to give it one time, so listen up. It's Paul Levitz and Joe Staten are the storytellers. Steve Mitchell is the inker, and Len Wein is the editor. Wait, what was that? Sorry. You rewind. All right, so we start off the story. Power Girl is pissed. She's just heard about uh, Harry Sims' campaign against super people, and she's come to make her displeasure known. But timely intervention by her pal, the Huntress, averts disaster. Sims, apparently too stupid to realize he just narrowly avoided a super ass-kicking, 
further provokes Power Girl as the girls are leaving, prompting her to comment uh, to the Huntress, Sheesh, I thought he was a friend of yours, as they streak away. Sims overhears this and starts to put two and two together about his friend, Helena Wayne. The girls switch to their civilian identities and go to lunch. They're talking about the trials and tribulations of leading double lives and the men uh, that they're interested in at the moment. Power Girl overhears a news report stating that Sims has dropped his anti-superhero stance uh, for reasons that he won't disclose. Power Girl is pleased, but Helena is suspicious. Returning to her office, Helena and Power Girl almost collide with uh, Carol, the secretary, who is hustling to make a large cash payment to a mysterious figure. Moments later, after Carol leaves, Sims shows up as well, and the figure demands payment from him. But Sims says that he's backing out. The figure, revealed now as the thinker, blasts Sims with some kind of mental whammy that imprisons him. The thinker tells Sims basically that if you fucked up my plans, I'm going to kill you. So at that moment, the, <laughs> the thinker's men, that actually would have been pretty awesome if he said that. It, it's, that's the gist of it. At that very moment, the thinker's men are clearing out foreign currency printing plates from the uh, Acme Engraving Company when Power Girl and Hunters show up to provide them with a much-needed beatdown. The girls uh, make quick work of the bad, bad men, but there is no time for them to stand around and take pride in their job well done as they peek out the window and see that Gotham City is ablaze with crime. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. So next, crime wave. Now, do you want me to just whip through these and yeah, then we'll, we'll go back? Or, yeah, okay. let's, let's go through all of them, and then, and then we can talk about the story as a whole. Okay. All right, so Wonder Woman number 275 sports a cover by Rich Buckler and I believe it was Dick Giordano on the inks, if I remember properly. Anyway, uh, title of this Huntress backup story is called The Thinking Man's Crime. Same creative team. All right, continuing forward, Gotham goes apeshit. Every low-life dirtbag criminal in the city is on the rampage. Huntress and her gal pal swoop in for the save, but a cautionary remark from a well-meaning police officer about the DA's waffling position on super people pisses off Power Girl, and they split. The ladies decide it's time to see Sims and settle this damn thing once and for all. But Sims already has a visitor, the Thinker who seemingly induces a heart attack in the DA in an effort to show him who's boss and that he'd better fall back in line. Harry recovers and goes out on the ledge, intent on jumping to his death and ending it all, rather than go back to being a pawn of the thinker. Jesus Christ, it's a little extreme, don't you think? But anyway, he chickens out. He can't do it. Just then, another heart attack hits, and he falls off the ledge. But the Huntress and Power Girl are on hand to catch him. Harry, looking at the Huntress, begs, <laughs> Help me, Helena. Okay, moving right along. Last chapter, Wonder Woman number 276, cover by Ross Andrew again, inked by Dick Giordano. And this one is called, the chapter is called, A Friend in Need. Same uh, creative team on this one. So we start out, and this one's a little bit awkward because we get kind of a, it, it's a slight rewind to where Harry is falling out of the window. And the dialogue is a little bit different here as they catch him together. And instead of saying, Helena, help me, he actually thanks Helena. 
she kind of freaks. She uh, sees here, you know, she figures out, oh, my God, he knows who I am. So what does she do? She pulls out one of her dart things and she actually pricks him with it so that he's drugged and will fall asleep. (laughs) She's really struggling on what to do with this guy. So in the meantime, Power Girl decides she's going to go see who pushed Harry off the ledge because that's what he said, which is actually not what happened last time. But we'll get back to that. She flies back to the office building, looks in, and cannot believe her eyes. Harry Sims is actually sitting on at his desk signing the anti-superhero legislation. And she's like, what the hell? I just caught this guy. It can't be the same guy. So she rushes in and confronts him. And it turns out it isn't really him at all that the thinker is using some sort of mind whammy thing on her and I guess everybody else to hypnotize her and everybody else into thinking that he is, I guess he's like projecting a mental image or something something like that. That's what I got out of it. It doesn't really explain that part very well. We cut to Carol, the secretary, and she's really torn up about whatever it is she's doing. We, we saw way back in the early chapters of this backup that, it looked like she was actually stealing money from her employer to pay this mysterious person. So she decides she needs help. She can't take this anymore. She's going to have a nervous breakdown. She goes to fess up to Helena and kind of solicit her help in this situation. She knocks, opens the door to Helena's office and sees Helena kind of kneeling over Harry on the couch and she gets totally the wrong impression that she walked in on them in an intimate moment or something. And Helena, she tends to Harry and then she decides she's got to go after the thinker. So she goes, she changes and on the way out the door, out the window, Harry asks her, uh, what are you going to do about me, about me knowing? And she's just kind of cryptic and says, right now, I haven't the faintest idea. And I like that. It's kind of foreboding. Like, Jesus, is she going to off the guy just because he figured <laughs> out her secret identity? I love it. So back in Harry Sims's, uh office, the thinker finally abandons his disguise and starts his supervillain gloaty thing about, you know, everybody's under my control. And I've even, you know, I even have control of Power Girl now and blah, blah, blah. And Hunter shows up. Shoots him in the head. His uh, his helmet starts sparking and sputtering. And he uses his mental powers to sick Power Girl on the Huntress. Now, this fight should actually take about half a nanosecond, but they actually <laughs> tussle for quite a while before uh, Huntress tosses Power Girl at the thinker, knocking his helmet off. As soon as it's off, she snaps back to reality and realizes, whoops, sorry about that. And that's pretty much the end of the thing you know the bad guy's taken out and the huntress swings away at the end saying that she has to see a man about an identity crisis and it says next issue secrets secrets everywhere and uh i'll I'll let you run first on your notes i I just want to say that uh i think this last chapter unfortunately tarnished the thing overall because I, i liked it up to this last part I'll kind of agree with that. I I like this much better than the Solomon Grundy story, basically because we have a villain that makes sense. We have an interesting dilemma in, you know, Harry figuring out that Helena is the Huntress. We have a really solid opening with Power Girl just pounding on this guy's desk. I like the little cracks that form in the desk on that first page. I had the same note, yeah. With that underling going, oh, God. 
What am I going to do? Um, but overall, really liked the story. Really thought the concept of the thinker being the bad guy um, was, a, was a good way to go. Because we actually got a villain, like I said, that, that has a plot that makes sense instead of Solomon Grundy being the leader of a, of a gang. I will admit that in the first story on page five, I was a little confused because they use as a transition whoever her secretary is giving money to is in the same position as the thinker on the bottom panel. And it made me think for a second that the thinker was the one that was robbing her of her money. And that just didn't make any sense to me. But um, I like the thinker's look. It's a very good late seventies, early eighties bad guy costume. I really like more than anything the dynamic between the Huntress and Power Girl. Uh, you you know the, there was you know like some Bat Batgirl Supergirl stories that I think kind of had a similar vibe to them, but I just prefer Huntress and Power Girl for some reason to you know Babs and Kara hanging out. Uh, maybe it's because I like Power Girl better than Supergirl in some cases. But do you think, given our speculation about Power Girl a while back? You think they ever, you know... Well, I was actually going to mention something about that. Um, liked the cliffhanger in the last... Uh, the, the second section, the last page of the second section. Uh, after the crime wave, which I thought was awesome. I really liked it. All of a sudden, all hell's breaking loose in Gotham City and Power Girl and Huntress have to deal with it. It's, it's a great part of the plan. But yeah, this last section kind of throws everything off, especially that change in the dialogue and, 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 and how, you know, it's like Harry was thrown out. No, he, he kind of fell out. But my main note, outside of her secretary is one of the dumbest people on the face of the planet. You walked in on somebody, that doesn't mean they're never going to listen to you or your problems again. You really don't have any faith in your employer uh, and the fact that she just gets naked in front of Harry to change mm-hmm. it to the Huntress. And uh, I'm sure he's liking that. But if this were written into the DC of today, the thinker would have already had Power Girl stripped down and he would have made her and Huntress do something to each other. Because that's just how things roll in the DC comics of today. Thinker would have been a complete pervert and a rapist. So, but yeah, those are my notes. Fuck you, DC. All right. Well, on the subject of being a perv, I could not help but notice that Wonder Woman gets bare ass naked in the cover in the uh, Wonder Woman number two seventy one issue, and I'm not exaggerating. It was awesome, and I lingered over those pages for quite a while. Also, no, they're not, but uh, they may be eventually. I cannot believe, sir, that you did not, you either didn't catch this or you simply didn't comment on it, but the circle is back. What? Oh, you didn't catch it. I can't believe it. Starting with Wonder Woman number 271, the circle that reveals so much of Power Girl's lovely, lovely cleavage. Oh yeah, back. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, you're right. I really didn't think about it. Huh. And it's awesome. not on the cover of the issue. The cover, you know, some of these these little circle images that they show here for the Huntress. Some of them look like stock shots from elsewhere. 
I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess th- it does look like Ross Andrew, but at the same rate, it almost looks like it's like cut and pasted from something else we've seen before somewhere. But anyway, the Huntress, or excuse me, Power Girl rather, on the cover, has the outfit she's been wearing all along. But in the issue, the one with the open circle, you know, right in the middle of her cleavage, is back from her, you know, her early All Star days. So I really like that. I just thought it was really awesome. You know, I mean, I, I I like comics. I like boobies. You put the two of them together, you know, it's the whole two great tastes that taste great together thing. You can't beat it. I'm a happy, happy pervert. <laughs> you are a dirty old man. Okay. Once again, in uh, Wonder Woman number 274, look at page two, uh, panel two. Where do you figure Sims' gaze is falling? Uh, page two, panel two. Oh, yeah, definitely. Where? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly where my gaze fell when I was reading <laughs> this. Even though she's a drawing. Yeah. Um, okay, the next issue, uh, Wonder Woman 275, I, you, you don't have to necessarily flip to it. I just, I love page two in that story because we finally get the Huntress hunting. She literally goes and hunts these guys down and takes them out. I, I just, I love it. I love the way it's drawn, the way it's paced, the panel layout, everything. It's really, really dynamic, and uh, it really made this story jump out you know it it really made it stand out as as something really cool and i agree with you wholeheartedly this is such a better story than that kind of happy solomon grundy one i I just you know i love the art in that one but didn't really dig the story this one i i dug it pretty much all around except to when we got to the last chapter the last issue something happened here the story it's not bad or anything, but it, it kind of devolved into the standard kind of gimmicky, goofy superhero. Well, I'm the villain with the mind control thing and blah, blah, blah. And it gets kind of kind of silly. Yeah, I can agree with that. But also, what happened to the art in this this issue? Because when I opened to that, um, I think it's a splash, isn't it? The, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I could have swore that was Don Heck, and until I looked at the the credits, I couldn't believe that it wasn't because the the art just took a serious turn right there. It just doesn't look like Staten. I don't think Steve Mitchell is a good pairing for Joe Staten. Mm, maybe that's I it. Really don't. And the art, looking forward, the art really kind of goes a, not completely south, but a little downhill from here on. Uh, that's when, a shame. When when Mitchell is inking. Uh, Staten. So yeah, it is a damn shame. But I like this. I, I like it because not only did it redeem, you know, if it needed redeeming, but not only did it kind of redeem the Huntress backup feature in my eyes a little bit, because I was a little bit nervous after the wonkiness of that first one. But also, I think this kind of sort of half-ass makes up for the... Uh, the Power Girl origin story that we did a while ago, yeah. too. Because, yeah, that one just really wasn't very good. But, you know, you put the two of these girls together and boom, you know, it was a good story. I like It's it. a great story. I, I, I just like the fact that their friendship doesn't come from, oh, we're like the main heroes, but we have girl in our name instead of man. Right. It's more of Helena is helping her adjust to life on Earth, and she actually... 
enjoys Helena's company. Like, they're friends. Right. Like, there's a legitimacy to their friendship outside of just having, you know, I can't even say mentors in common because they don't. Because, you know, Batman was, you know, her father and someone, an inspiration, but he never mentored her in the ways of being, uh, you know, a Bat character. Though, you know, well, no, because, you know, Batman was kind of involved with Batgirl in the very beginning. Not involved like that, but involved in her crime fighting, so... And, you know, Power Girl really doesn't care for her cousin, which is one of my... Everyone likes to say that Jeff Jeff Johns loves continuity, but I actually have a huge disagreement with that. Watch the emails flowing in now. I have a gigantic problem with that because in Infinite Crisis, when she remembered her Earth 2 past... All she could talk about was the great times that she had, you know, living with Lois and Clark, you know, and all the Christmases and, you know, all the things you showed me. And you look at those stories and, yeah, you could argue maybe it's her having rose-tinted glasses on the past, but she wanted nothing to do with him. (laughs) Right, right. She wanted completely away from him. So, yeah, that's, you know, Exhibit A and the... He, he might enjoy certain aspects of continuity, but he is willing to throw big, important pieces out to suit his own stories. Uh, that's an excellent... A crappy way to write comics, but okay. That, that's an excellent catch, sir. I, it really is. I, it, you know, I, It's one of those things I feel bad that I didn't catch it myself, but I think the main reason I didn't catch it myself is I'm not a fan of that story at all. Okay. So that has a lot to do with it, I think. But uh, yeah, you you make an excellent point. You're absolutely right because yeah, if you're if you're going strictly by established pre-crisis Earth two continuity, then yeah, she's avoided him like the plague the whole damn time. And and the few instances we have seen them together, she's a complete bitch to him. So yeah, where where's all this? I love and miss oh, my you, cousin. You, I hung yeah, out with him all the time. Shit come you, from. You took me in, and we did this, and we did that. I was just like the first fucking chance she had. She she bailed on him. So. Well, yeah, you even you even have ancient dying uh, Aunt May. I mean uh, Lois Lane saying that uh, you know you were like our you know the daughter we never had yeah, or some like, shit like f- that. Where the hell are you getting this from? Have we even seen? Lois Lane and, and Power Girl together? No, not yet. Do we? I don't know if we see it in Infinity Incorporated, but we don't see it here. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, maybe we do there. I, I can't. I I can't remember. I can't remember. Then but. again, their their involvement with each other, Infinity Incorporated, was Superman beating the piss out of her. So. <laughs> yeah, that 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 makes you feel good about him. That makes you miss him and want to want to get back with him. Yeah. No, but I'm going to end my rant there. But that 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 is, you know, in, 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 in tales of the Justice Society of America versus Jeff Johns's uh, inappropriate use of continuity. That's that's Exhibit A. So there you go. <laughs> but that's pretty much all I got. I mean, like I said, really enjoyed the story, uh, and, and even the ending part being wonky aside, it was a it, this would have been a great one issue story. Uh, I actually would have liked to have seen this fleshed out a little because I would have liked to have seen more of them fighting crime in Gotham City and taking I'm, people down. 
because I loved that part of the story. I'm surprised that uh, Huntress never got her own title. I think she could have sustained her own book, especially if it had been either the Huntress with a Power Girl backup or maybe a Huntress and Power Girl book, like some sort of Earth 2 girls world's finest sort of title if you know what i mean cool yeah i mean i think it's amazing because you know i only have this first trade this is how i'm reading these stories for right now and they reprint wonder woman 271 to 287 289 to 290 294 and 295 and i'm like well that must have been the end of the huntress backups i'm like no it continues well into the 300s so the fact that she was able to sustain a backup, and you got to think that as poorly as Wonder Woman was doing at this point, were people buying it for the Huntress backup? I suspect so. I mean, I know that's why I'm buying them as back issues. See, I'm going to be buying them anyways because I'm trying to fill out my Wonder Woman collection. So, but yeah, the the secondary and almost as important is the Huntress backups. Well, I because, mean, I'm. Uh, yeah, I've been really work, trying to work on my my uh, pre-crisis DC collection. I mean, I, I don't know which issues of, of Wonder Woman you're looking to get, if you're, if you're looking to get them all or whatever, but the only ones I'm interested in getting because they're Wonder Woman are the ones where Colin comes along because that stuff's excellent. But this stuff before that, I just, you know... I, I'm not reading the stories because I'm focusing on the Huntress stuff, of course, but also even just perusing them, they just don't look interesting to me at all. Well, the art's not very good, and the stories just look really boring. Have you ever read um, the complete Wonder Woman, uh, the Wonder Woman, the complete history by Les Daniels? No. See, I, I bought the Superman one. I bought the Batman one, and I, and I bought the Wonder Woman when it came out because I wanted the complete set. But it wasn't until like 2002, 2003 that I actually read it. Wonder Woman has one of the most fucked up histories in comics. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking continuity. I'm talking in how people just don't know what the hell to do with that character. At all. Period. It's oh, like I, every, every, every once in a while she'll get a writer that knows what to do with her. George Perez being a great example yes. of that. I liked what Greg Rucka did with him, with her. I really did. I think, I think his run eventually became hampered with the larger events of the DC universe at the time. But I think he he didn't do what Perez did uh, in terms of, of making her. You know, I don't quite know how to describe it. He made her different from the other superheroes. Rucka did that too, and he played with the mythology, but he did it in a completely different way by focusing, you know, it seemed that Perez wanted to focus on her being an ambassador of peace, and Rucka wanted to focus on her being somebody who preaches peace, but is a warrior born and bred at the same time. And I think both of them kind of got the character. Phil Jimenez run on Wonder Woman... A lot of people like it. I think it was just a pale imitation of what Perez did. I, I think I think he didn't really do much with the character that I enjoyed. So, and Burns' run, Burns' run was cool because it just made her a flat-out superhero again. Right. 
and I liked that. I like his run. A lot of people don't like his run on that title, but I thought, you know, starting right at 101 all the way through his run, uh, the only thing that I think uh, I disagreed with him doing in that title was taking Wonder Girl away from Green Lantern and making it that her and uh, Kyle and Diana had to break up because I liked that couple. But uh, other than that, her pre-crisis run is wonky as hell. (laughs) Yes, it is. I mean, let's look at this. Okay, so she's written by Robert Kaninger through most of the 50s and 60s, and the man couldn't write a coherent story to save his life. A lot of people like Kaninger. Not saying he's a bad writer. I'm just saying he's not a very organized one. So then Mike Sikowski gets a hold of her, right? Takes away her powers. With, and then Denny O'Neill follows that up. So they give her her powers back because people are like, whoa, what are you doing? And what's the first thing they do? The Justice League makes her go on, like, the, the, the ten trials of Hercules to prove that she can be in the Justice League again. It's like, really? Then they drop her into World War II. Then they bring her to the present again. And then Roy Thomas uh, revamped the character, and there was a lot of fanfare around that, wasn't there? At the time? Which which when, revamp was this? Roy Thomas she, and Gene Colan. Oh, where she got the boost, the new Bustier and all yeah. that? Yeah, there was. Yeah, I, I can remember that being in, what was it, like Ms. Magazine or something like that? And uh, I think it was like Gloria Steinem had something to say about yeah i i just i remember there being a big deal about it so you know she she's just a character that has to be had to be published at the time uh because if she wasn't the molten the marsden estate could take her back from dc right uh which is why you got that legend of wonder woman miniseries between the last issue of the wonder woman series and uh, the first issue of the Perez. Oh, I didn't know that. Man, I, that was one of the most... Uh, you know, I've bought a lot of comics over the years where I felt just completely fucking ripped off, and that's that was one of the biggest ones of its time because I only bought that because it was billed as some sort of half-assed crisis tie-in thing, and it totally isn't. <laughs> but that end, thus ends the rant on Wonder Woman, and I do apologize for those... No, no, not at all, because you... You brought up an interesting point um, about them just not knowing what the hell to do with that character. I think there's three classic characters in comics that fall completely under that banner of we don't know what the hell to do with these characters. Strangely, they're probably the top three patriotic characters, and that being Wonder Woman, Superman, and Captain America. I think for many, many, many years, those characters have been just the same way you were running down Wonder Woman's history, where you've got great highs and incredible lows mm-hmm. with with both of those characters. I think at the moment, Superman is in an incredible low. I think at the moment, Captain America is at an incredible low. But, you know, hopefully... You know, the, these characters have endured all this time, you know, and they and they come from that classic, you know, World War Two or just pre-World War Two era. I think that's part of the problem, maybe some sometimes, especially with Cap and Wonder Woman. 
or maybe even more Cap because he's still tied to Wonder uh, to World War Two. Wonder Woman really isn't, well, you know, Wonder Woman or Superman. Neither one of them are really tied to World War Two. But I still think because their roots are in that era, that that's why every retooling or every attempt to make them uh, relevant. And I hate that. I hate when I see that story come up. You know, yeah. they're not relevant. No one can relate to them. Yeah. Really, you, you can't relate to someone doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right. Yeah, really. Drives me nuts. And I see that. that you know, much I, of a fucking idiot. It, it seems like about every 10 years we see that, you know, there's these same comic stories. That's, and I'm not talking like a story in comics. I'm talking like a, a, a headline will pop up. And, and that's the one that makes me insane is when, you know. Superman to be retooled by Joe Smith, flavor of the week comic creator, because you know Superman just not relevant for the year 2010, and it's like horse shit, horse shit, for exactly the reasons you said. You know, he's a super strong dude that wants to do the right thing because his parents fucking raised him right. What do you need to retool about that? But we are starting to <laughs> go down that well. dark path again. So. So you want to knock out a few emails before we end it this week? Since we're I, running on a good uh, clip here. I do want to knock out some emails this week. Do you want me to go first, sir, or do you want to go first, sir? Uh, you go first. All right, I will go first. Okay, our first one here is from uh, Jose Rivera, and he writes, uh, his title is Green Lantern and the Big Announcement. Hey, guys, thought... Uh, I had that issue of The Flash, and I, too, was fooled by thinking this was an Earth 2 story. Imagine the surprise on my face when I realized it was not. Yeah, it's probably the same look I had on my face. Now as a Flash story, it's all right at best. But really, testing your invention on your son's comic book? Scientists really aren't that well-adjusted, are they? The Green Lantern stuff sounded pretty awesome. It sounded like one hell of a fun backup, but... I guess I'll have to track down the single issues as reprints from DC are hit and miss, depending on what you're interested in and what sells. Okay, as for the big announcement, first off, I love that you are using the theme from... Our, have we announced this? What theme? Yeah, we've talked about this. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know if there was a contest in the future before I said that, but he says, I love that you're using the theme from Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. I've already made it clear my love for that theme. However, to hear it every week in conjunction, uh, bet you never thought you'd see that word used in modern email, <laughs> with the All-Star Squadron is going to be awesome. Frankly, I'm surprised I'm seeing punctuation in this email with it being a modern email, but, you know... <laughs> I'm sorry, was that pithy? <laughs> that was pithy, but, you know, you gotta call them like you see them. Exactly. I mean, you know, I, I'll say this, and I, I mean this wholeheartedly. Um, our uh, our feedback, I mean, it's it's it exercises good writing skills. There's mm -hmm. punctuation. There's grammar. Things, for the most part, are spelled correctly and used correctly. And there's comedic timing. Yes, which and it's is something a, I really appreciate. I mean, the the feedback that we get is by far. The, the best correspondence via the internet that I personally participate in because I see some stuff sometimes I'm like, wow. Now, I know for a fact this person graduated high school. Why the hell can't they spell? 
Well, well, here's the thing, and, and I'm going to lump the, the audience of From Crisis to Crisis and Views from the Long Box in this, but uh, especially since Views is now owned by DeManzo Core. I, th- I think the the listeners of the podcast put out by DeManzo Core are the best in the multiverse. <laughs> and, I, and I think uh, it is reflected of the, in- the... The emails are reflective of the intelligence of the of the listeners as well, and I appreciate the hell out of that. I really do. Absolutely. Getting back into this, he's uh, talking about the All Star Star, and he says, "I think we've all been waiting for you to get to it." Well, we've been waiting to get to it, and it's great to know you're going to do the preview insert from Justice League of America. That damn issue was a pain for me to find at a convention, but I eventually found it in a fifty cent box intact. Sweet. Mm-hmm. I've read quite a few issues of All-Star Squadron, but have more hole but have more holes to fill in my collection than Swiss cheese. So even though a lot of it will be new and possibly spoiled for me before I complete my collection, the hell with it. I want to hear about every issue. I want to hear about all the good and from and from what I remember there is a lot of good with that series. I want to hear about the bad, of which I'm sure there is a fair amount, and your thoughts and experiences about the title as it's obvious, you two have a love and passion for it. Very I hate good. It. <laughs> I do have one request slash bitching to hand to you guys. What about Steel, the indestructible man? What's going to happen with that episode? Will you guys spend an episode talking about the mini before he joins the team as All Star Squadron kind of continued where the mini was canceled? Or will it be a special episode of Back to the Bins? Will you guys talk about it? I sure hope so, as after hearing you guys mention it oh so many episodes ago, I hunted it down at a convention and spent so much time and a little money hunting down that one missing issue. It's true, guys. The law of 50-cent bins of for getting a near-complete run of a comic, that issue you're missing will elude you for so long and you'll pay through the nose to get it rings true. Anyways, I can't wait to get into the next phase of the show as soon as possible. With some luck, sometime down the road, we'll be hearing you guys cover Infinity, Inc. and my all-time favorite Golden Age series of the 80s, The Young All-Stars. All right, before we get into the second half of his uh, email here, what did we decide about Steel? We're going to do like he said, right? Cover it just before we get to that yes. issue that's kind of ties... that. That issue is like the end that was supposed to, or the next issue that was supposed to be on that series and never got published or something, right? Like Something yep. like that? Yeah. That's exactly how it went. I thought it would yeah. be a good way to tie everything together. So yeah, hang in there, Jose. It's coming. It's coming, buddy. Calm down. <laughs> he continues. Now, this is post-listening to the uh, episode. He says, after listening to your latest episode, allow me to say hell yes to the All-Star Squadron. I love the new opening. I love that you used a speech to accompany the narration, and I especially love that you used the Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow theme. Before the big arrival of the JSA back in 98-99, I found All-Star Squadron number 50 in a 50-cent bin at my local comic shop. It's a crisis crossover issue, isn't it? I barely knew of any of the characters in that issue, but thankfully it was written so even a new reader like uh, myself didn't have a hard time following what was going on. Wow, that's if I remember that issue properly, there's a lot of shit going down in that issue too. I'm yes, I'm surprised. Is. Yeah. 
I picked up various issues here and there, but I remember getting All-Star Squadron number 51 because of the great cover with Uncle Sam. Is that the one with, like, the black condor and the human bomb and all those guys kind of running running out from Uncle Sam? I think so. Yeah. This series had a lot of great covers, of which I'm sure you'll all be getting to down the line. Yes, we will. As for the preview insert in the first issue, that was a lot of fun. Thomas set up the JSA heroes very well. Slowly but surely, he inter- he also introduced what would be the main cast. Even the villains are outstanding here. Well, some of them. But even the corny ones had charm. There's not much to say on this that hasn't already been said, and I don't really want uh, I don't really have any nitpicks. I'm looking forward to you talking about the series, but please don't deprive us of your personal stories either. A part of the show I'm starting to love is learning how you guys got these issues or the personal tales slash connections you have with certain issues or the series as a whole. I'm going to stop right there for a second. I was thinking about that today, actually. I wish I could remember more of where I got particular issues in this series. So far, the ones we've covered, I'm pretty sure these were all back issue finds for me. I'm I'm not... Off the top, I'm hoping that it will come to me over time as we go through the series, but I can't remember what my first issue of All-Star Squadron was. I know it wasn't the first one. I just, I, I honestly can't remember. Well, I mean, if I you include what the, mine was. If you include the preview, then it would be the preview. But but the the series proper, I, I, I honestly can't remember. I'm hoping it'll come to me. What was yours? It was around issue 35 where a certain really insignificant hero died and we uh, there was a lot to do with Our Man and it basically explained how a certain set of heroes got to a certain Earth. Ah, okay. Cool. He continues, It's a new phase in the podcast as pretty soon you guys are going to be getting to Infinity Incorporated and Young All-Stars as well. But now that we're into the meat and potatoes of the show... Let's all enjoy the ride. Sincerely, Jose Rivera. P.S. Green Arrow is really pushing it in that hostess ad. Yes, he is. <laughs> Thank you, Jose. So our final email tonight is from Trent Thornton. It's, it's labeled Episode 31, All-Star Squadron Begins. Hello, Michael W. Bailey and Scott W. Gardner. Not quite getting that, but it's kind of amusing. <laughs> Thanks for reading all of my emails in your email episode. I hadn't realized I'd sent so many. As for episode number 31, we've come to it at last. I didn't get in on the ground floor of Tales of the JSA, but it was an, when it was announced on the Catharsis episode of Views from the Longbox, for some reason I assumed you two were beginning with the All-Star Squadron, then tackling other JSA titles as they struck your fancy. This was what I was always waiting for, and the debut episode didn't disappoint. Once again, the heroes could have saved the day if they had been properly alerted, but once again, weren't uh, weren't because one of their number wasn't paying attention. Wow, good to know that some things never change. <laughs> Am I going to be able to offer some new fawning praise for Roy Thomas? I seriously doubt it. Suffice it to say, the man rocks. The Buckler art is a vast improvement over Staten's work from the All-Star Comics era, so you'll hear no complaints from me on that front. You okay? 
Yeah, I'll be all right in a minute. Okay, okay. Okay. As for Ordway's inking, as a Superman fan, first and foremost, word, Jerry Ordway's cred with me is obviously obviously damn near unlimited. I'd buy a comic even if he did was staple the damned thing together. Slap his name on the cover and see if I don't buy it. I dare you. The next part is barely even tangential to Tales of the JSA, so feel free to skip this if you decide to read my email. Hell no! The joke about your rebooting your JSA podcast was great, as I obviously have no more love for most new comics than either of you. However, it hit me as I listened that reboots aren't exactly the problem with DC Comics, retcons are. A perfect example is the Jeff Johns and Gary Frankenstein Superman sucky origin. (laughs) If that had had washed all previous continuity away as Burns' Man of Steel mostly did, I'd probably still hate the new origin, but perhaps with slightly less venom. It's the fact that the new origins, for all the retconned DC characters, not just Superman, attempt to incorporate all the post-crisis story elements into a retroactive new origin that bugs me. For reasons that are entire too lengthy to get into here, there's no way that Hal Jordan could have ever become Parallax in a post-Superman sucky origin universe. It's simply impossible. But in spite of that, we're to somehow assume he did because whoever makes these decisions doesn't have the nuts to actually reboot and restart everything. I agree with that. That, Trent writes, is what bugs me. The old continuity is not being scrapped. No, the glue that held the continuity together is what's being deleted, and the House of Cards can only tumble after that. Mm-hmm. In some way, yeah, oh yeah, hell yeah. In some ways, I kind of understand that mentality, since, for example, Jason Todd getting murdered by the Joker is a powerful moment in the Batman mythos. It's not that I don't understand that there's some reluctance to delete Batman. Batman's a death in the family story arc. It's that I just don't give a flying fuck. <laughs> if DC is serious about assembling a continuity at works, the only way to really accomplish this is to do a universe-wide restart where everything and every character gets rebooted. Half the continuity problems that occurred after Crisis on Infinite Earths can be attributed to DC not following through on the premise of Crisis and restarting everything from the ground up. I don't like reboots, but I'd take a clean, pure reboot any day over the week over idiotic bullshit retcons that only create more problems than they solve. Sorry for the lengthy off-topic rant, but you two are the only people I know who'd give my ramblings even half a brain cell of attention. As always, great great episode, great comics, great podcasts, great hosts, T. Trent, I feel very badly that we're reading this one at the tail end of an episode that's already going to run two hours or better, and we're already at the time limit that we personally set ourselves to be done with the show because, buddy, you bring up some shit I could go into for, like, the next four fucking hours. But Yeah, no shit. I'm going to sum myself up very briefly with this. Too little, too fucking late. If they did it now, I I wouldn't give a shit any more than I already don't give a shit. I'm 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 basically done with DC. I'm done with books that are that are continuity relevant in any way for this very bullshit. I I have no more patience or time left in my life to get reinvested, if you know what I mean. In my opinion, Crisis on Infinite Earths was a promise to us. We're going to straighten the shit out, and we're going to go forward. And for 20 years, I'll give them this much, for 20 years they did it. But the the current stuff that's going on post-Infinite Crisis, to me, 
it, it's taking a dump on that promise. I felt like they were they were doing what they promised that they would do. And if they did it now, I, I see what you're saying. And around the time of Infinite Crisis, I may have agreed with you that, yeah, go ahead, scra- scrap the whole damn thing and start over with. But now at this point where we're at with with all the things that have happened and my just general dissatisfaction where the point that we're at, I, I just don't I don't care if they did it now. I, I don't even think that it would make a blip on my radar. I just I'm I no longer feel a sense of attachment or investment, which is really damn sad. It really yeah, is. It is. I'm just uh, I don't want to go into it because I'll start swearing again. <laughs> As usual, the All-Star Squadron issue talked about in this episode was has not been reprinted, but you can find the three Huntress backups we talked about this week in the Huntress Dark Knight Daughter trade paperback. Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to.